A poem is a terrible place to brag to the world how awesome you think you are, but it is a great place to confess to the world how you fall short of being the person you want to be. And I've never been able to write about the money I come from because it, I'm afraid it's going to sound too much like bragging. I tell my students sometimes the thing that you are most afraid to say is what the world most needs to hear. Taylor Molly, I'm Andrew Connect, and this is the Unpretentious Podcast. Taylor is an author, teacher, poet, and spoken word performer who has appeared on HBO and inspired over 1,000 people to become teachers. His emotional exploration into topics like living with those who suffer from depression has shed light on our inner topographies and given people new ways of seeing themselves and their experiences. Taylor was kind enough to invite me into his home, give me a set of metaphor dice, and even sign a copy of his latest book, Late Father, for a friend. And in return, I was kind enough to ask him about being a trust fund kid. I can't believe that in your very first question, you called me a trust fund kid to my face. <laughs> but I guess that is what I is. <laughs> that is what I was. And I'm trying to become more comfortable with that. My... My dad never lived long enough to see the movie The Descendants, the George Clooney movie, about super rich people on Hawaii. Uh, but there's a line that George Clooney has in his a monologue where he says, I believe in giving my kids enough money so that they can do anything, but not so much money that they can do nothing. Mm. So there was never, I don't think I have enough money to to do nothing especially if I to have the house in Brooklyn that I, that I have <laughs> and raise kids the way I want to raise my kids and travel and eat and drink <laughs> but um, so my you know the money set aside for me by grandparents and great-grandparents you know subsidizes my life as an artist your question was, how does a trust fund become a teacher? Teacher. Well, I went to, I was exploring, I went to graduate school in Kansas in the early 90s to become a better poet. And while I was there, I started teaching freshman composition. And I just found that I loved teaching. And back then, in 93, it seemed that Teaching was going to provide a more viable option for giving me something to fill my days so that I could write poetry the rest of the time. I never dreamed you could be a professional, touring, spoken word artist. So, how, so to answer your question, how does a trust fund kid become a teacher? If you have the work ethic, quite easily and comfortably. I was never going to starve. In fact, I thought we had direct deposit at the last school where I taught 
<laughs> and the head of the business office put a message in my faculty mailbox said, could you come see me? And I thought I was going to get fired. <laughs> and he said, do you realize I have your first six paychecks of the year? And I said, no. Oh, I thought we had direct deposit. He said, no, we've been talking about it. We don't have it yet. It's like, oh, 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 oh. He said, do you want these? I said, yes, 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 I will take them. But if you, you know, you, you cannot really hide who you are, especially if you don't pick up your paychecks for the first 12 weeks. I lost my parents really when I was 25 and 30. Um, that, that has subsidized my life and has made it possible for me to do what I want to do, which is following my, following my heart, being a, being a poet. I think that's an interesting perspective. It's like, was it your great-grandfather was the Met founder? One of my four great-grandfathers, everybody has four, <laughs> unless, unless you're from Tennessee. No, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's, that is so unfair. <laughs> It's West Virginia that deserves that. No, everybody has four great-grandfathers and four great-grandmothers, even if they can't name all eight of them. Mm -hmm. And in many, in my, in many people have never even meet any of their great-grandparents. Or if they do, there's one who was very old and you met them when you were a baby. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the gold standard. To meet one of your great-grandchildren, that's a and yet one of mine was John Taylor Johnston, and he was the founding president of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. His name is carved in stone. And you, I've mentioned this in a poem. And I, when my parents, I lived two blocks from the Met, and my father used to take me to the Met every other month or so. It's just a two-block walk from, from Park to Fifth. And, and I would say, oh, we're going to the Metropolitan Museum again? And he said, you know, most kids don't grow up two blocks away from one of the greatest museums in the world. And I actually responded, well, then most kids are lucky. lucky. <laughs> but he, he, my father would always take me and say, that's John Taylor Johnston up there. He was the founding president, and you were named after him. And I thought, so this museum is basically mine, is what you're saying. <laughs> that's what I hear, too. Well, I think that gives you a unique perspective, because most people have to pay the mortgage. It's like, why do you do your job or why do you do what you do in life? And it seems like that, I don't, was that ever a perspective of yours? Like, I just got to do something to make money or is it more like I'm looking for something that provides meaning and value or I'm passionate about in life? The second. The second. I mean, I still have to pay the mortgage and I used to drop when my son was very little and my wife was pregnant with our littlest one. I would sometimes uh, drive her over the Brooklyn Bridge and drop her off in downtown Manhattan where she works. And on the way back, my son said, Daddy, why does mommy have to go to work? And I said, well, you know, why, you know, why does she? And he said, Be to pay for the money? It's like, that's right, that's right. Somebody has to pay for the money. <laughs> so that'll be a poem. It's not a book of poems, paying for the money. So yeah, I guess a job was always I, I had the luxury of of pursuing what I love, finding something that was I was passionate about. And you don't think it you don't think it's odd that a teacher is where you ended up. It wouldn't fit with what Hollywood would tell me about. You know, either you're gonna waste your life doing nothing or you're gonna go to some very niche 
Like, no one else understands this, but that seems like a very grounded... I can definitely see Hollywood saying that a trust fund kid is going to waste, you know, be, like, be a coke addict. Correct. Right. I'm, I'm glad I never became a coke <laughs> addict. But the other one, oh, becoming a... Like, I'm going to be an alpaca farmer? Yes, so, like yes that? because that's, that's the only thing that's exciting and new that no one's done before that seems new or interesting. To me, that's just, it's just interesting that teachers, where you ended up... How did you find out that was, of all the things in life, that's what spoke to you? I guess I fell into it. I mean, hmm. even people who have the, the most organized career plan are still going to, to tell you, I, I think, that they, that they are the victim of some happy accidents. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I go back to what I said. I, I, I went to graduate school to become a better poet with no plan. Of what that meant, and uh, and found out. Hey, well, you know what? I like. I really enjoy teaching, but let me let me try them when they're younger. How did that transition from you're a teacher to now you're performing on HBO? Well, I'll tell you. I got to be the voice of Burger King, <laughs> and that. Speaking of, of safety nets, <laughs> I made I made more money saying ten words for Burger King. I'm gonna just lean into your microphone and say my Burger King line, okay? Okay. So I hope it don't I hope it don't blow it up. Burger King, when you have it your way, it just tastes better. Offer available for a limited time only. Price and participation may vary. <laughs> I used for, for for about ten months. I made my living leaving the school where I was teaching and going to a voiceover studio in Midtown Manhattan. I could do it on my lunch hour if I had a free period after lunch. Mm -hmm. I needed a double period. I'd go in, i put the cans on, the cans, you know what the cans are? i put, put the cans over my ears and, uh, and they would make me say it. Uh, I was announcer one and that's not the person who says, um, Come in this week. We've got the new Burger King Chicken Deluxe. That's that's announcer two. two okay. I was the tagline at the end of every commercial. I said, Burger King, when you have it your way, it just tastes better. And I had to do it about three. Eventually, they settled on three or four versions. Sometimes there were three chops. I didn't do the chops. They put them in digitally. <laughs> but because of union rules... Every time they put my voice on the end of a new commercial, Residual. they had to put, not the. I mean, the residuals are where the are where the real money. When when they've got an ad that works, okay. they keep playing it, and I get the residuals from it. But they also, you know, I went into the studio maybe maybe not quite a dozen times to record various versions of the line. But then what they got was about three or four different versions that they stuck on the end of, I'd say, a hundred different commercials. Right. And they have mm -hmm. to pay me Each a time. session fee as though I had gone in to record a hundred different times. So that's the, the SAG-AFTRA union. So just, uh, in, I think I was the voice of Burger King from 98 to 99. That helped me buy an apartment. And then, I, you know, I was at the, I used to slam, I used to be in the poetry slam. I used to run, help run one, too, here in, in New York. And I won the Nationals. I went the, for the first time in 94 and made it to the finals and took another team in 95. And we made it to the finals and took third. 
and then in 96 I won, mm -hmm. and in 97 I won, and I took 98 off, and 99 was a disaster. And then I came back in 2000, which was the year that I put my teaching career on hold, and won again. So that was a huge vote of confidence. Mm -hmm. Took 2001 off, came back in 2002, won for the fourth time. So I had this, I had this slam that, that was, there are so many teachers who slam that the slam season nationally was the summer, uh, which works perfectly for the teacher's schedule. And there was a guy who had seen me in the slam who in 98 or 99 said, how much would I have to pay you to come out here to North Dakota where I run the student union uh -huh. at the University of North Dakota or North Dakota State. He would, be, he would hate the fact that I don't remember which one. And it was April and I said, I really, I can't leave. And he said, I'll pay you a thousand dollars. I said, no, it's not a question of money. Fifteen hundred dollars plus, plus round travel. trip airfare and yeah. tra travel. He said, no, it's really not a question of money. Two thousand dollars. <laughs> and I ended up not, not taking the gig. If you want to know what the true price of something is, you have to just not want it. You have to say no, and then and then you find See out. See where they top out. Yeah, at. yeah. That's where it tops out. <laughs> now it's a little bit awkward for someone whose most well-known poem is "What Teachers Make." How dare you judge me as a teacher by what I make? But I secretly actually do judge poets by how successful <laughs> they are. So if that's duplicity. Then then guilty as charged. But I hung up the phone with him and thought two thousand dollars. I make $28,000. If I did 15 of those, I, in a year, I would be making more than I do as a teacher. So, but that, that's what gave me the, uh, an inkling of what I might be able to mm -hmm. command as a, mm -hmm. as a poet. And it was maybe 18 months later that I went to the headmaster of the school and said, I'm going to try to make a living as a poet because I don't want to be on my deathbed and thought, I really could have tried to pursue being an artist full time if I'd had the guts. And you know what? That's where the money, that's where the money came in. The, because it didn't take quite as much guts. I knew that I wasn't going to starve. A couple of calls and I could have covered the mortgage payment even mm -hmm. if I made nothing as a mm -hmm. poet for the month. Don't you think that that forces you to make your positions almost from a place of strength, like rather than desperation, where it's like I have no other option than to make it as an artist. I'll, you know, I'm doing whatever it takes. Like you're being deliberate and intentional about it because it's not you have to. It's I'm choosing to do something that I don't know if it made you wildly uncomfortable, but it's definitely not a here's your ten year plan for how you succeed in this profession. It's like they're it's open ended. Who knows what's going to happen? That is a very magnanimous way of, of looking at it. And you're, you're correct, uh, partly. <laughs> and here's what I recently realized, is that the, the, the question, <clears throat> if you ever get to interview another trust fund artist again, <laughs> okay. here's, the, here's the worst question you could ask them. Do you ever s sit up late at night worrying that if you didn't have money, your pure talent wouldn't be enough to let you do what you do. Watch, watch, 
any trust fund artists squirm when you ask them that question. Um, and the, they haven't quite finished, you know the way when you take, if you, if you, um, if you have a chemical imbalance in your brain, you, you might take a prescription for that. Right. And, and people who take those drugs often say that it, it, it takes out the lows but it also takes out the highs as well. Yeah. So I was never going to starve. Mm. So it did allow me to say, you know what, this is a conscious choice. But I was never going to bust my ass because I needed to. So I'm a trust fund lithium poet. <laughs> There's a poem that I haven't written yet. I feel like it's... I've got some cousins from other sides of the family where there was money on, on all sides mm -hmm. who have decided that they want to be actors and they, they live very subsidized uh, lives. And, um, and their parents would talk to my parents and say, can you talk to him and tell him that, okay, the dream of being an actor has you know, has failed. Right. Now you've got to find something else to do. I'm glad that you see it as, you know, I had the freedom to do anything, so therefore it was a conscious choice. Yes, but there's also, there's also, there, there may be opportunities that came my way that I let go because I don't need to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't need to get up that early. <laughs> would be nice to do that. I often find myself not knowing what to do when I want to quote Louis C.K. <laughs> he used to be one of my favorite comedians and secretly sort of is, mm -hmm. but he said that there were entire careers that he just wrote off because he would, he would have had to get up early. And he says, well, okay, well, I guess I won't be that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, yeah, I heard him say that. I don't know, somehow that seems appropriate. Does that label of a trust fund, do you feel that alienates you from most people, or is that something? Yes. And, I, and, and it is something I, I, have, I feel that I need to hide from the world. And I, f I have always failed. I have, you, you can't really hide what you are even if you do pick up your paychecks on time. But I'm coming to terms with it. And I think my next book is gonna be about family and genealogy and I'm a descendant of, of, of um, both on one side, on my father's side, the earliest uh, Dutch settlers of New York. Mm -hmm. And on my mother's side, I, I'm a descendant of William Brewster who came over on the Mayflower. And I'm trying to figure out what my next book is going to be about. Mm -hmm. um, the, on the New York, on the Dutch side, I've got some awful, awful people. <laughs> and on the Nantucket, you know, I've got some Nantucket surveyors who were poets who translated for Native American languages. Peter Folger was, um, wrote a poem. Uh, he was Benjamin Frank, one of Benjamin Franklin's grandfathers. And Benjamin Franklin is a cousin of mine, but so this guy, Peter Folger, is one of my great, 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 great grandfathers. And he was a poet and a teacher and a surveyor. And so I, I, maybe I'll write about him, uh, but I've been recently thinking about 
what if my next book was called Trust? Like, am I going to dive into that? A poem is a terrible place to brag to the world how awesome you think you are, but it is a great place to confess to the world how you fall short of being the person you want to be. And I've never been able to write about the money I come from because it, I'm afraid it's going to sound too much like bragging. Is it Letterman who says there's no complaining on the yacht? Like, oh, you're gonna complain about problems you have from being rich, like you're saying. Like, no one wants to heat, no one, no one's gonna give you any sympathy for that. But yet, as an artist, isn't that what art's all about? Is people whose stories no one wants to understand, or there's pain there that no one, the average person doesn't understand how to relate to it besides saying, Psh, I wish I had that problem. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? That's everything I wanted in life, and you're up here being like, poor me. I get that, but yet, as your experience knows, it's not, it's not everything everyone thinks it is. So maybe I need to take my own advice and, and, and write that book and, and try to... Well, who, knows, who knows that story? It's, no one wants to hear that story. It's not... No, hot. I, yeah. and that's, that's it. I, I have to try to write the story that nobody wants to hear. How are you going to make me feel any sort of sympathy for you when you're complaining about what a great life I think you have? That's I'm a... complaining about, what a great, about the great life that you think I have. It needs well, to be about yeah. how it's not what you think it is. As we speak... It's December 16th, 2019. You came to Brooklyn to interview me and to go see the Christmas Spectacular at Radio City Musical. There's a dorm, there's a concierge downstairs, not a doorman. They don't open the door for you, but they make sure, they check in the packages. And we used to have a doorman here and he got fired, but not for what he, what I'm about to tell you he said to me. Not really knowing me at all, although he did say, hey, I saw some of your stuff on Deaf Poetry Jam. I, I really enjoyed it. I said, okay, yeah. thank you. Um, but then out of nowhere, he said, hey, Taylor, um, does being rich solve all your problems? I wasn't, getting, I wasn't going to like clutch my pearls and say, how dare you ask me? <laughs> and I think I said, yeah, it solves a it solves a lot of them. It solves a lot of them. But the ones that it doesn't solve cannot be solved by money. So I think this book would have to, would have to revolve around the, the problems that are not, are not solved by money. What money can't buy. What money cannot solve, yeah. yeah. I'm blanking on the author's name, but he was, he was talking about how, like, he, he said, like, you know, tonight I saw society and saw how hollow it was. Like, everything I've been dreaming about, like, you know, all these influential people, this, you know, this great setting, this beautiful place. And he's like, I saw how hollow it was and how everything was built upon a lie. And all these people are really, you know, it's just a plastic smile. They're all just nodding to get along about. And he's like, I wanted to plumb the depths of America, you know, that actually had meaning to it. For some people, they think their biggest problem is money because that's very immediate. That's very real that if I, you know, I got to pay rent, so I don't have time to think about other things. I think there's a high cost of entry because who's going to want to even have that conversation I don't want people want to listen but I do think it's one worth having if I do it right the publicity around the book be, would be great people would say how did you make me feel sorry for you I think Chappelle pulled, Dave Chappelle he pulls it off like he always somehow he can joke about oh, I'm always killing it on stage I'm murdering I'm rich and people still love him even though he's Brett so somehow he's found a way but he but he he grew up in the projects. He can talk about that. I grew up on Park Avenue. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I guess he plays that some, but more he's just—he's more just like, 
well, everyone wants to be me. I'm happy I'm me. So that seems relatable. It's like, he's like, you will, you all will be the same as me if you were in my shoes. Somehow, somehow he pulls it off. I don't know. This might get into your demographic question, but a white man, a straight white man can't say that. Can't say that. It's just, I'm, I'm okay with, if identity politics means that there are certain people who we don't want to hear say certain things or don't have the right to say certain things, mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. I, I, I've run into trouble a couple of times when I say, oh, this would be such a funny poem. This would be such a great poem. And then there's a little voice saying, yeah, but are you the person to say this? It doesn't matter. It's going to be such a great, no, but it, it matters. There, there are a bunch of poems that I've said, you know what, I think I better just shutter that. Well, I like the line from one poem you talk about that you know the best conversation on race isn't one you have with yourself. I thought that was a good avenue into, and that's a poem I don't do anymore, mm. because nobody wants to hear a white guy complain about being called the N word. <laughs> if you said, "Here's a poem about somebody's discomfort with being called the N word." Like oh yeah no that's that's a that's mm. that's a tried and true uh, style of poem yeah, but it's a white guy talking about his discomfort the one time that a person of color called him the n word <laughs> and and that's what that I, I you know I wanted to write about that maybe you know maybe we'll come around and, and and we can we can we can bring that poem out but that is one of the poems I don't do anymore it's called the best conversation on race yeah yeah. God, you are so well-versed in my work. I'm very honored. Well, I'm glad to be here talking with you, because it's, it's interesting to see someone who has insights into things. You're like, I would never... Like, now that you see it that way, you can't help but see it that way, but before you heard it, you're like, I don't really know how to think about this or what's going on there. So when you find that, then you want to find out as much as you can. How else do you see things in life? Where it's, it's like, okay, your experience is different than mine. You're telling me what it's like authentically. That's interesting to me, because that's real to you, as opposed to this is... A narrative that plays well or it's popular or it all fits into what we think we understand. That leads me to a question, what do you value in life? When you feel as though you are you are crushing what you were put on this earth to do, that is such a great feeling. That drives me. That is that's that is important to me. And of course having kids, I in my book is my last book is called Late Father poems about my own late father as well as becoming a father late in life. You met my two-year-old when you, when you came in here. I'm 54. Now that's in Brooklyn, that's not the oldest dad. I'm not the oldest dad on the block, but uh, you know, I was married twice before and one marriage ended uh, tragically, but, but I had known that that was not going to, um, have, there were not going to be no children from that marriage. But my wife said to me, are you sure you're okay with that? Because I do think you'd be a great dad. I was like, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And then it, it, it wasn't fine, it wasn't fine. But she died before um, before that was resolved. And then my second wife just, just didn't want kids. And I always said that I wanted kids 49%. <laughs> Such a such a mathematical. You can tell that even though I'm a poet, I used to teach math. I said I want kids, but only forty nine percent, and that means that as long as I meet a woman who wants kids fifty one percent, and most 
most women want kids more than <laughs> more than fifty percent, more than seventy percent. Mm -hmm. And 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 I met a a woman. I married a woman who she really only wanted kids ten percent. She's like, if if this is your if if you really want this, mm -hmm. then 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 we can do it. But I haven't really doesn't. You seem to be having an awful fun time. Being a jet-setting spoken word poet, are you sure you want to do this? And and so you know, we made the decision not to have kids. And she realized earlier than I did that we would both be happy apart. And although at the time I felt like I had the the rug pulled out from under mm -hmm. me, which I once accidentally described to somebody else as having the plug pulled out from under me. <laughs> I accidentally mixed my metaphors there. So, about late father is, a, is, is about poems about my own late father as well as becoming a father late. And it's, it's, it's filled with, you know, fears of mortality. Like, if, mm. if I, both my parents died at age 58, Within, within a month of each other, within 29 days of each other. They were five years apart in age, mm -hmm. so they died five years apart. Mm -hmm. But when I did the math, and you, you can actually do this on a spreadsheet, you can, you can put in somebody's birthday and their death, Day. and then say, subtract, I want you to subtract April 3rd, 1932 from July 5th, 1990. And it will tell you the number of days that they lived. Mm. So I did that for my dad, and I did that for my mom, and then I found the delta of those two, and it was 29 days. I knew that they had lived relatively close to the same, they had been given the same allotted lifespan. If I die at the same age as my parents, my son's gonna be eight. You know, so I, I gotta stop talking about it. I'm going to, I'm going to, to live a long life. I, my, we, I've just started having the conversation with my four-year-old about, he said, he said, he, we were talking about death. We have, you know, we, we have the portrait of John Taylor Johnston, the Met founder, on, on my living room wall here in Brooklyn. He, his father, John Johnston, you probably didn't read this, but he was one of the founders of NYU. And, and he has a mausoleum in an old cemetery here in Brooklyn called the Greenwood Cemetery. Oh, we should have recorded this in the mausoleum. And so we, and, and we found out, I had never visited it, but Rachel, my wife, is very interested in cemeteries, mm. very interested in exclusive New, New York real estate. And she said, we, we gotta, you have a portrait of him in your living room, we gotta go find it. Right. So we found the mausoleum and then we talked to the cemetery and they said, Oh, you know what? Nobody's nobody's been in that since 1940, and if you'd like to be buried there, there are 16 coffin births, and only five of them have been filled. So if I launder money, that's where I'm, that's going to be in the mausoleum. So we have a nine-inch-long brass key that we keep in the glove compartment of our car downstairs in the garage in this building, and we just. On the, it, you get in there, you can park for free. It's yeah. a great, 
it's a great family outing going to the mausoleum. And the mausoleum is right next to DeWitt Clinton, who was an early governor of New York. And it's, you know, the John Johnston, I think, died in... The, Greenwood is, was built in 1838, 1840, and I think John Johnston died shortly after that. And, but being having your co coffin slotted into one of those shelves in the mausoleum sort of fell out of favor, and so his son, John Taylor Johnston, is buried uh, outside it, and Rachel wants to be buried outside. There's enough room for both of us to be buried outside the mausoleum. Rachel wants a big Jewish uh, tombstone with the Spock hands, you know, the, uh, <laughs> okay. that's a Jewish um, oh, okay. Spock uh, symbol of live long and prosper, is actually a, uh, yeah. Leonard Nimoy is Jewish, and so and he, he got this from, from, did not from, know that. Yeah, from what? some Shabbat service. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but so we were talking, I was talking to Aaron and, and, um, and he said, are you going to die? I said, yeah, I'm going to die someday. And he said, uh, am I going to die? It's like, uh-oh, here we go. But, but we've talked about it so much that he was fine. It's like, yeah, you're going to die, but not until you're at least 100. <laughs> so I've lied to my son. Or maybe, or maybe not. I don't know. So in addition to the, your emergency champagne flutes, you know, have a, you have a key, that, key to a graveyard mausoleum. That's a, that's a different aspect of life, I guess, to, you to know, celebrate. The, the, that's another reference to an old poem, Emergency Champagne Flutes. I carried in my car. One of my loves is sort of cardboard engineering and folding things out of cardboard. I'm going to just walk over to the uh, corner of my office and pull out one of the things that my son and I do: or make these little little cardboard houses with hot glue and <laughs> fold it out of cardboard. And it's one of the things that we like to do together, working on these fine motor skills and. I love um, folding up, folding things. Uh, if we ever talk about metaphor dice, uh, the original metaphor dice were made out of paper. I would go into a class and say, all right, here's a cross. Mm -hmm. You cut this cross out and fold it into a cube. And on this, on this cube, I want you to have concepts. And on this cube, you want to have ad adjectives. And on mm -hmm. this cube, you have objects. And so now you roll and you get love is a handed down blessing. That's a metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. um, my father is a broken mirror. Nobody would ever think you meant that literally. Mm -hmm. It's a figurative expression. And it helps kids think figuratively. But I really got into the cutting of the paper. And and yeah, I took some cardboard like that, cardboard there, mm -hmm. and, and created this uh, device that would hold two champagne flutes. And I could put them, I could just throw this thing in my car and it would protect them and keep them from breaking. And I did, I did, I had emergency champagne flutes in the back of my car, but I didn't carry around emergency champagne, which is really more important. <laughs> well, the idea, I think it's a, it's a beautiful idea. I, like, that's how we should live life. I do, I do things a lot for the beautiful idea. idea. When, I, when I was in graduate school in Kansas, I moved there with my, the woman who would later become my first wife, from the Bay Area, where we lived. And she got into graduate school for journalism and said, I'm going to the University of Missouri's graduate program for journalism. And it was one of a highly rated program. Mm -hmm. She said, we can either flip 
We can either have, have a long distance relationship, mm -hmm. or you can move to Columbia, Missouri and flip burgers, <laughs> or we can break up right now, which maybe was what we should have done. But I said, wait, there's a fourth option. What if I go to graduate school too? And she said, for what? And I said, poetry. <laughs> so I searched within a four-hour radius of Columbia, Missouri, and I ended up going to Kansas State University to study with uh, Jonathan Holden and Elizabeth Dodd. Mm -hmm. uh, but, oh, I, I, had a, I brought my Mustang convertible, my, my black 5.0 Mustang convertible, which was an awesome car for Berkeley, and uh -huh. driving around the, you know, Tilden yeah. Park. But it was the dumbest car for a Kansas winter. I had a garage at my at my at my apartment complex. Of course, the trust fund came in. I was able to live in this really swanky um, uh, housing complex that was really only for the officers of Fort Riley, which is a big army base just down the mm -hmm. down the road. And so I was the only grad student from Kansas State who was living there, and I, but I had a garage, and one, one blustery winty, winter day, I decided I didn't want to walk the mile to, to class, so I said, I oh, know it's stupid, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back my convertible out of the, my garage space, and it, you know, the Mustang, all the weight is in the front of the car, and all the power is in the back, and I, I backed out, and I started fishtailing and sliding. I said, no, this is dumb. I'm going to kill myself. I better put the car back in the garage. I couldn't even get, get the car back in the garage. <laughs> but anyway, I started this. You're talking about the beautiful idea of the thing. I used to carry a glove compartment filled with tiny containers of Grey Poupon mustard. Okay. And I, when I pulled, because there, there was a Grey Poupon ad where two Rolls Royces pass, oh, and somebody said, pardon me, do you happen to have any Grey Poupon? And of course, <laughs> yes, of course I do. And so I would pull up to girls and I, with my sunglasses, and I used to wear a red beret like I was a member of the Guardian Angels, listening to the Spin Doctors cranked really loud, and I would give hand out tiny little bottles of Grey Poupon, <laughs> just for the beautiful idea. It sounds like someone's like, like Steve Jobs, where he talks about his life, and he's like, you can't, you can't live your life going forward, you can only look backwards and connect the dots, and for him, it was like, he just liked calligraphy, so I think he took a class, and that turned into like fonts and stuff, where he cared, so for you, like going to poetry school, that was not, that was just something you weren't doing, be, I mean, you knew you enjoyed it, but there was never any plans for this is what I might one day end up being. No, no. But it got me in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. Ironically, the very first National Poetry Slam was in the Bay Area in the fall of 1990. Mm -hmm. The Poetry Slam was invented in the late 1980s by a Chicago construction worker named Mark Smith. So what, you might say. The national championships, the very first nationals, wasn't until four years later. And it was in the Bay Area in 1990, I would have discovered the Poetry Slam had I stayed in the Bay Area. I would have discovered it that, yeah. that, that autumn. And I, would have, I probably would have loved it, uh -huh. except that I, you know, two months before that, I had, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait for the first time, I left 
uh, Berkeley and drove to Manhattan, Kansas, where I was a graduate student and, and, and learning how to write better poems. I got mm -hmm. a more academic uh, grounding. Um, uh, I read more. And it wasn't until like my final year of graduate school, one of my master's professors said, have you heard about this thing called the Poetry Slam? Yeah, they have one over in Lawrence on the first Monday of the month. You want to try it? I think, and I, that's where I found it and thought, this is fantastic. This is the perfect marriage of my skills. I'm a poet, but I really believe in reading out loud. I've been to drama school. We didn't even talk about me going to drama school and deciding not to be an actor. Jeremy mm -hmm. Irons came to speak to my class and said, for God's sake, if there's anything you can do other than be an actor, do, do it. it. So I thought, ah, oh, okay, I'll be a poet then. <laughs> I don't think that's what he was thinking. But I would have discovered Poetry Slam earlier had I not gone to graduate school, and I would have been a perhaps less successful poet for the lack of the academic grounding that I got at Kansas. And a lot of your material, some of your material, like what teachers make. I wouldn't, have discovered, I wouldn't have discovered how much I love teaching. I never would have written What Teachers Make. Yeah. yeah, which I know that speaks to a lot. I know that speaks to a lot of teachers. I touched a nerve with that poem. Yeah. I used to, I used to get emails of people saying, you know, I never knew what to say to my parents mm. when, when I told them I was a teacher, and you provided me with the, what I what my comeback. It is. You know, one of my favorite definitions of poetry is what oft was thought but ne'er so well expressed. It's not a new thing. Can you hear my baby crying? She, this is her nap time. She's about Aww. to get put down for a nap, and she fights it, fights <laughs> it. But we're we're cutting short her nap, because to to any parents out there, um, if you're in the you know I've got a four year old and a two year old, and toddlers toddlers just wake up early, mm. and what I would not give to have both my children sleep until five thirty. Until 5.30. Just give me until 5.30. This is a.m.? Yeah. Ugh. The little one gets up, has been getting up at 4. Actually, she, the last two days, she's gotten up at 4.30, and my wife and I have said, oh, well, that's an improvement. She gets up at 4, and a couple of days ago, she got up at quarter of 4. And was up, was up for the day. Wow. So we're cutting short her after her 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 nap until to try to prolong to sleep. try to you know but it's it, see how it goes we'll it, see how it goes we'll see how it goes everything is a phase one of the things you mentioned about poems or talking about like you know how teachers like now I can explain what I'm doing to my parents I mean that that's how like I view your writing so I'm curious about your process where to me it's like you know the way Columbus discovered a new land he ventured forth you know the maps say. Here be dragons, people are scared to go beyond this point, it's uncomfortable, it's unknown, we're not sure what exactly is going on there. A lot of your writing is kind of touching, you know, for teachers in a very positive way, or like, you know, your death day poem, all there's just just things that people don't really want to talk about or think about, and it's like you go there and then you find a way to present it to people that's at least understandable, if not compelling, for them to make their own journeys or to say, yeah, this, this speaks to me, I want this. How do you, so how do, you, how do you go about doing that? So many, so many things in, in that question I'd love to respond to. Let me quickly say that one of the processes that I use for writing a certain kind of poem, I call revealing. And that's veil like a bridal veil. 
Mm-hmm. It's not a word, but I'm going to make it a word. Mm-hmm. And in the poems that I, where I'm doing a revealing, there's four steps. Um, first, you have to reveal. You reveal something that you're not particularly proud of. Now, that's, that's going somewhere that people don't want to go. Mm-hmm. Then you have to revile, revile it. You know, let yourself hate it. Mm. Let yourself, oh, I can't believe I did that. Mm-hmm. And then you need to flip the script and you need to revel in it. No, you know what? I'm actually glad I did that. <laughs> and then the last step is to just put a new veil, a new type of veil over it. Not one to, not one to hide, but to highlight. So that's, that's a certain kind of poem that I write, mm-hmm. is excavating my life for these things that I was not proud of. Do you know my poem, uh, Holding Your Position? Well, yeah, because I, I was asking, like, do you want to be the center of attention? It's like, that's the poem where it's like, you know, you talk about, you realize you could be a performer. Like, how do you... Right, right. <laughs> got a couple right. questions for you. It's, yeah, right. It's about the dumbest, the dirtiest, dumbest thing I ever said while recording a skit with my brother. And, as like a 12-year-old? Or... As a 12-year-old, yeah. and he was he was younger. And, uh, and, and my brother thought, oh, that's so good. But I just, I put basically all of the dirty words that I knew into one sentence, and, and it sounded tough. I thought it sounded tough. Um, but it doesn't make any anatomical sense. And so, I, you know, for the longest time, I thought, I cannot let anybody know that I said ever thought that. <laughs> and finally, I thought, no, you know what? I, I tell my students to, that sometimes the thing that you are most afraid to say is what the world most wants needs to hear, needs to hear, or wants to hear. Yeah, and a poem that I, I, I gave my students, I was a visiting teacher at a school in Manhattan for six weeks, and I asked the students to write a poem based on a Ted Kuzer poem called Abandoned Farmhouse. And this one kid came in, and he didn't want his poem to be read out loud, but it was already out of my hands because I had given the poems mm. to my assistant, and he it was his job to come in with three poems that were going to be handed around. And so this kid had said, Mr. Molly, I don't, I don't want my poem to be one of the ones that's handed, his name was Topher, mm-hmm. not really, but let's just pretend it was right. something like that. <laughs> and so at that moment, my the assistant, the, the regular teacher, their regular AP English teacher, Adam Jernigan, comes in and says, Topher, we're definitely, excellent poem, we're definitely doing yours. So Topher, 10th grader, says, oh, my life is over. <laughs> and the line that he was afraid to let his classmates. classmates hear was this. The half-drunk bottle of whiskey hidden in the back of his desk drawer says that he is not the good boy his parents think he is. And there was an audible gasp among the, the rest of the kids. And I said, what's your favorite line? They're like, that. Mm-hmm. And this one girl said, I didn't know that we could write about things that were important. It's like, oh my goodness, thank, thank God you just helped me teach the rest of the class. You should only write about, no, not only, but I believe in what Horace said 2,000 years ago. The task of the poet is to either instruct mm-hmm. or entertain, and that the best poets can do both at the same time. But to write about things that are important, that's, that's when you are instructing, right? And so a line like, the half-drunk bottle of whiskey hidden in the bottom of his desk drawer says that he is not the kid his parents believe, 
that's going to instruct everyone that we all have secrets, you know, that mm-hmm. we that we put up this this facade and 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 the and the bravery it takes to 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 reveal them. Uh, you know, I would I would much rather begin like a poem should at, at some level say here's a secret I thought I would never tell anybody that at least certain kinds of poems yeah. you know, there's there are many different kinds of poems and if anybody listening to your show says I don't like poetry that's like saying I don't like music you you just haven't found the kind you like that that vulnerability that you're talking about to start with of going someplace that you don't want to go for yourself and then finding a way to make it, if not acceptable, at least understandable. I mean, that, that's the gift you're giving to others, right? Where they internally don't know how to do that. All they know is, I feel shameful about this, or I think it's dirty, or I don't know how to deal with it by not thinking about it, not talking about it, even though it's weighing me down. No, no, it, it ends, it, if you're lucky, it ends up being a gift. But that's not, that's not what drives you to the paper. Let me give something to the reader. You you go for you. I go for me. Yes, but that that's that's what brings others into your yes, world. Yes, no, no. Yes, you yes you're correct. Isn't you that that's not to, the goal? Yeah. Right. You have to trust that if it if it if it works for me, maybe it'll work for somebody else. There's a line in. Do you have um, the wedding stone? Yes, the wedding. Okay. Yes. All right. There's a poem in there called "The Entire Act of Sorrow." Um, that took me 10 years to write after Rebecca died. And the line is, uh, I, I'm forgetting it now, but it's about what, you know. Uh, Even if secretly, somehow you wish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That I knew she was going to kill herself. Even Like putting down a dog, right? Like, right, right, right. Even if, even though, and I cannot, and there's a line, I cannot bear to say this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hoped she would. You know, I, ho- I hoped mm-hmm. that she would. You know, she never talked about suicide, but but you could, you could tell it was on her mind, and there was this horrible part of me that was just like, would you, if you're gonna do it, would you just get it over with? And so I put that to paper, thinking, I've just confessed to being a horrible, horrible person, and mm-hmm. people come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I lived with someone who was depressed, and I thought I was the only horrible person. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you think that's the different, like what you said of, like, you do it for yourself, do you think that's what, do you think that's the dividing line when it turns people off, that if you're doing something but they get the sense that he's doing this to, for me, like, to get a reaction or to be popular, or to be, that people can tell that between, like, this is being very self-revealing like about myself and whatever happens, happens, versus someone who's more calculated to, I'm going to say something to make me, you know, to get a following or to appear, do you think people can figure that out? Of, I like, do. I could, I do, you, you know. Somebody much smarter than me, uh, Daniel Pink, is that his name? Pink Pinkman, um, or one of, the, or maybe a Malcolm, somebody in the Malcolm Gladwell, Gladwell style. Yeah. You know, talked about internal motivation and external motivation. The kid who is externally motivated by grades mm. to study mm-hmm. and do well is not going to learn it. The subject in the same way that the kid is internally motivated. Mm-hmm. This fascinates me. I want to do this, and almost conversely or or counterintuitively, art 
that is created um, inter with internal motivation mm -hmm. is the stuff that lasts the longest. Art that is created because I want success and I'm gonna mm. it never lasts. It might it might become like but Andy Warhol is now kind of, not to pick on him, but wasn't he kind of, he kind of figured out this is how you become popular, which is just oh you're asking me questions I'm not interested I don't know so he he kind of did the fame thing in order to get a following, but I don't I'm with you I don't I don't think that survives the test of time. That I think Andy Warhol had a mixture had more going on, but but he was definitely a a marketer. Yeah. Yes, he knew it. So, so then, how do you how do you enter the marketing world without having that influence your art, your artistic drive? Then, a similar question is how do you participate in the poetry slam without having the instant the adulation that you get from getting high scores from drunk bigots <laughs> affect how you write, write in the a future? Poem. Yeah, I think there's a balance between both because right. no, I'm sure there is. You you do want others to appreciate what you've. You want to find some audience or have someone who understands it. I think it's almost good that there is a give and take where you do have some sort of obligation to present things to people in a way that works for them but yet remains true to you. And the opposite is also true. If you ever see someone, there, there are people who write poetry and it is, it is a kind of therapy for them. Mm-hmm. You know, writing about your problems definitely makes you feel better. Mm. Anybody who's kept a journal and then gone through their journal, today was a terrible day. Rebecca <laughs> doesn't love me. <laughs> you, you, it's, it's hard to write about joy. That's another thing that we can talk about. But, mm. but um, hmm. just because a poem makes you feel better uh, doesn't mean that it's going to work as a, as a poem. If it is... So I, I, I'm, I'm contradicting myself slightly. You know, I, I don't, it's not, I go to these dark places for the healing first. And then in revision, you come back and say, you know what, this was good for me, but maybe how, how do I turn this into a poem? And you have to be able to change things in the poem that are going are gonna to make it a better poem and not necessarily quote unquote true. You have to be comfortable saying, you know, this is how it happened, but it actually works better for the poem. Artistic for, license. For yeah. Artistic license. Poetic license is permission to lie to tell the about truth. the little things in order to tell a deeper tell, truth. Tell the truth. Yeah. I think somebody, there's a definition of poetry is a, a lie that tells the truth. Mm. My poem, What Teachers Make, is about a dinner party where a lawyer puts down me and the entire teaching profession by trying to judge us on, on what a teacher makes. That's based on a New Year's Eve party that I went to. There weren't just a dozen people at the dinner party. There were 200 people. And the lawyer who asked me that question didn't phrase it in that way. And also, he was the host of the party. So he, and he was a little drunk, and he was six foot five, and gorgeous in his tuxedo that he probably owned. And those are all little things that don't really need to be in the poem. Well, well I saw you speaking about that in one of your performances. Like, this is how it happened, and this is the rebuttal I wish I had. And it's like, goodness, we let. It's like, you really don't want someone to really look up to you. It's like any, anything of like people see this larger than life. It's like you want to kind of cut through that at times to. Why is that important to you? Why do you do that? Just tell people the truth behind the poem. If you thought I was so great, 
I don't know. You know, so much about who I've been has been, I feel like has been hiding, that maybe I'm trying to be honest about certain things like that. Also, I get invited to a lot of, because I was a middle school teacher, mm -hmm. I still get invited every year to speak at a dozen or so teaching conferences. Mm -hmm. And I'm speaking, and I never want to, um, I never want to make anyone think that I'm putting myself in a uh, position of being a, a master teacher, you know, or I'm not Jonathan Kozel or Diane Ravitch, who also are on the same circuit as I am, talking about education. Um, there's a topic called edu, edu joy. I don't even know how to say it. But it's, it's, and that's, that's my niche, is the joy, the joy of teaching. And the, there used to, when I was a kid, there, ABC had a, a, a ABC's Wide World of Sports, mm -hmm. the, the thrill of victory and the, the agony, agony of, of defeat. defeat. Yeah. So that, my job is to, is to just revel in the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Years early on in the, in when I wrote um, What Teachers Make, I once had this guy write, and that poem has some serious detractors. I've had people who said, how dare you, how dare you not let a kid go to the bathroom? Don't you know that can cause urinary tract infections? It's your job to answer questions. How dare you not let a kid ask a question? But uh -huh. then it's like, no, no, no. I said I make kids sit through 40 minutes of study hall in absolute science. You can't ask me a question in study hall. You just have to work quietly for 40 minutes. Yeah. And no, you can't go to the bathroom because you, were, you, you have five minutes to go to the bathroom. But what was I saying? Oh, this guy wrote to me and said, um, oh, I thought the, the, the best piece of hate mail that I ever got was, um, what teachers make for 10 years got um, disassociated from my name. I, it's my own fault. I put it up on my website early on in, mm -hmm. in my on my brand new worldwide website in 1999, <laughs> saying click here to see a ver a, a one of my poems um, coming soon a store where you will be able to uh, you know buy some of my books. But that page is under construction, so I have a little gif of somebody of a workman. <laughs> you know, do you remember these black pages? Kind of. Okay, but yeah. Uh, okay. Um, well, there, before HTML had caught up to what we wanted the web to be, um, so I had to click here to see a, a version of, of a copy of an example of one of my poems, and there was what teachers make, but it didn't say what teachers make by Taylor Molly, and here's the text of the poem because you're on TaylorMolly.com, right? But I didn't know back in 1999 that people were going to copy and paste, and eventually my name would get separated mm. from the poem by well-meaning teachers who wanted to inspire uh, others. And so I, this guy posted a version of my poem, and I, I wrote to him and said, hey, I, thanks for the, 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 the loudspeaker, um, but I, just, I want you to know that that's a, a poem of mine. Um, here's the original. And he wrote back, and I, God, I must have touched a nerve. And he's like, you just a... Petty teacher who wants credit for everything. There's a reason why every successful social revolution begins with lining the teachers up against a wall and shooting them. It's like, okay, all right, I'll be taking my email offline. Do you think that's the downside to going places people don't want to go? Is that for some people, 
However, they either have the courage or they're ready to face that. But for other people, when you're, when they're still engaging in, I only know how to deal with this by ignoring it or by saying it's not true or I'm not that person. And then you, you take something that's vague and nebulous and you hit it right on the head of this is what you're feeling and this is why you're doing it. They have to then double down on even more extreme of reaction to not face it. By, to, you're an awful evil person because surely these feelings inside of me must be about you and not me. I'm going to answer that question the way Pete Buttigieg might. I heard an interview with him, and he's so good at answering questions by going, maybe, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Looking at the demographics, people of a certain, you know, the higher your tax bracket goes, it seems like they want to relate around pleasure. Kind of like I was talking about of like, you know, there's no complaint on yachts or you have this money, so aren't you going to specialize in something obscure? It seems like that's a niche for the, you know, the very wealthy is like that's how they relate to each other about this alpaca farm or I grew this thing and, you know, how amazing it was. It's like they, it's like a very specific highbrow joy. And then the more common, they relate around pain. That's an interesting thing. It seems like there's like a split between how, if I meet someone new, how do I want to relate to them? Well, I, I think you feel bad complaining. And, but, I think, but I think you're wrong about, about, about people struggling, that people struggling with money relate, I, I know you didn't say only through pain, but I, I think there's always people can relate through joy. Early slam poet DJ Renegade uh, had a poem called, you know, Who Says There Ain't No Joy in the Ghetto? Uh -huh. and, and, and it's like finding the beauty, finding the beauty mm -hmm. in things. Frank McCourt, who wrote Teacher Man, I, I think he said, uh, happy families are all alike, but poor, miserable families are miserable each in their own way. It, it was either Tolstoy or mm -hmm. Frank McCourt or Nabokov or somebody. Uh -huh. You're very familiar with your family history. You know, we've already had this conversation. You have your family tree. Marshall McLuhan, The Medium is a Message, he talks about how TV has now, it's called the new history. It's like the new history. It's not about knowing who your family is or your nation is. or All, all that is not how you learn about yourself. You learn about yourself by demographics. Your age range, your you know societal breakdown, your money. These are what make you who you are and where your interests are and how you find other people. What do you think people miss if that's, if they don't, why should people care about their family history? What is it that speaks to you that you find this a rich source of inspiration, joy? What, what's, what's going on there that this speaks to you so much? You mentioned earlier, or we, we discussed that demographics might... Let us hope demographics are not the new genealogy. What speaks to me about genealogy, I, I went down the rabbit hole. It's so easy to get an Ancestry.com account you put in your parents' birthdays and death days if they've died. You put in your grandparents' names and birthdays. You put in your grandmother's maiden name. And then what's, what's great about now in genealogy is that the, wor the world is working on the same tree. And so very quickly the computer will go, oh, I know. I, we, we think we know who you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And if it is, it's this person, and here's all this information about them that you don't even have to fill in. Mm -hmm. um, I read you a passage from my one of my great great no great grandmother's journals, begun in Hartford in 1897 when she was 57 and had just become a grandmother. 
And I find uh, um, th that tradition of the youngest grandchild gets to walk the length of the, of the Thanksgiving table from uh, one end to the other. Uh, now there were, that she came from a family where there were, you know, that her grandfather had, what did we decide, nine, uh, 14 children who lived to adulthood and mm -hmm. had children of their own, so they must mm -hmm. have had 30, 35 grandchildren. So every year there was a different youngest grandchildren grandchild who couldn't mm -hmm. walk the length. What a great memory for that entire family mm -hmm. to have in common. Do you remember when you were allowed to walk the length of the dining room table after Thanksgiving? We're, we didn't get to do it with, uh, with my youngest this past Thanksgiving, three weeks ago, uh, but we intended to, we will. Um, I've read in old journals of my ascendance, which is the opposite of descendants, but nobody uses that word anymore. <laughs> Um, you know, oh, he suffered from gout, and he had a pain in his big toe. And when I feel that, when I read that, I'm like, I sometimes have a pain in my big toe. Is that, is this a pain that my past family pain, that, that that has been, you know, I share that guy's DNA. Yeah. Also, the other thing that I find fascinating is we we mentioned, you rarely get to meet your any of your great grandparents and if you do and nobody I know has met any of their great great grandparents even in the movie Coco the animated film Coco mm -hmm. he's the, the matriarch of the family is his great great grandmother and he goes oh she died long before I was born but her daughter that's my grand, my great grandmother Coco that's mama Coco and 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 they they overlap for that's it's a Mexican culture so you know, different cultures are different. They they have mm -hmm. have families at different times, and uh, but I never got to meet any of my great grandparents or my great great grandparents. They all died before I was born. My my the one the great grandparent who lived the longest died ten years before I was born. So he would have been he would have been very old had I been born a little earlier and he'd been born a little later. But we we tend to think of everybody who came before our grandparents as old people mm -hmm. even though many of them died before they even got to be your age they had their kids and then they people here's something that we don't think about in the past people in the past died and they died hard and that's why they had 19 children because they needed the workforce and he had 19 children and 14 of them lived to adulthood F kids are dying right and left mm -hmm. i'm not even sure how i got into your question oh well, i'm trying to why is that because the way you talk about like your family traditions that's how a lot of people talk about their favorite shows remember that episode remember that time and it's like you actually right. so why is that important why why spend time researching that rather than watching i don't know but i will tell you this my aunt, my mother's oldest sister, is still alive. She's in her 80s, and she also is in, involved in, in genealogy, but long before there were computers. So she just has these lists and lists of people. And, and the thing, of, you, you need a computer to track your family, because the numbers get so big so fast. Ten generations, you know, I'm a tenth generation uh, New Yorker, but that means, let's see, my parents' generation is two to the first, right? That's two. Great-grandparents, mm -hmm. great, great two to the second, that's four. Two to the third. So if I'm a tenth, that means my ten generations ago is 
2 to the ninth, right? Hey Siri, what's 2 to the ninth power? 2 raised to the ninth power is 512. So nine generations ago, okay, one of my ancestors was brought to New York on the uh, Der Eindracht, the the boat that came in 1624, mm -hmm. but there are 511 other people whose DNA eventually became me, and I'm trying to figure out who all of all of them are. So you need a computer, to, and of course they all had kids. They all had 256 men and women right. who had 128 men and women who had. You know, it all comes down to me in the power of two. You need a computer to just to keep track of the numbers. But I was talking to my aunt, and she said, "God, you do not." study genealogy the way I do. I said, how so? She said, I was always happy just to be able to find out the birthday and the yeah. death day. And I said, no, no, you got to keep studying until you, until you get one of their secrets. She's like, that's what you do. And because until you find a secret mm -hmm. or a story to tell, you know, and that's why when I, I read you the first line of my great-grandmother's journal, Begun in Hartford, mm -hmm. I did, you know, it, she was born in 1840. She wrote this in uh, 1897. She was 57. But I found out that she had just had her birthday 10 days before she sat down to write it. And she had become a grandmother. So it begins, Dear my children, now that I am a grandmother, I feel the time is right for me to sit down and write the book that I have long promised you. That's awesome. Yeah. But you got to find their stories. And, surprise, surprise, their stories might have to do with you. Let me see you. It's down in, I think it was Argentina. They have a bookstore, and the bookstore used to be a theater. Like, I guess the guy who owns it, like, he converted this theater that wasn't doing well into a bookstore. And there's books lined up Super everywhere. Shoes. There's a big stage. Yes. And that, that to me, is how... It's like, okay, I can view a book as a performance. I can view a book as the way a ballerina might make a move. That's how this book should be viewed and thought of the same way. You know, page meets stage. How do you, how do you think about your books in terms of, like, is it just this thing that you read or is it this living, like, what does a book mean to you or your books? What do they, what does that for represent? For me, for a spoken word poet, anybody who's a spoken word poet who writes poetry specifically to be heard before it is ever read, the performance is an advertisement for that poem in book form. I see my performances, is that what I think? Because I, because uh, this is where Billy Collins and I disagree. I asked him, how do you prepare for your readings? And he said, I don't. Every reading is a dress rehearsal for the next because the poem exists here on the page and how I read it on any given night is almost incidental. And I believe the opposite, right? The poem exists here while I am speaking it aloud. And how it is written down is almost mm. incidental. Now that is why old slam poets and spoken word poets, often their poems when they are written down are a little bit, don't work quite as well on the page. They ramble that maybe they don't know where to, where to break a line. Um, but so I, I do believe in the primacy of, of the performance, of the written word. I mean, of, of, the, of the word spoken out loud. The series you, you, you alluded to, Page Meets Stage, also called Where the Pulitzer Prize Meets the Poetry Slam, 
that's where I take these two poets, one more literary and one more performative, and they read back and forth, poem for poem, sort of, sort of answering each other, but sometimes, you know, sometimes the two poets will say, you're an identical twin? I'm an identical twin. And they find out that they have that in common. And sometimes the poets will say, I've got nothing. We're going to go off in a new direction. The very first reading was me and Billy Collins back in 2015, back in 2005. We're at the 15th anniversary. On May 14th of 2020 in New York City, I'm going to be reading with Billy Collins at the Sheen Center. Where would people go for that? Uh, go to it's not up there yet, but it will be soon, pagemeetstage.com. You know, when Billy Collins said the poem exists here, and this is what is going to survive, he wasn't thinking about YouTube, he wasn't thinking about Spotify, mm. he wasn't thinking about spoken word recordings of poetry, uh, which are, are more popular than ever. Um, but I want my poems to look good on the page. I love the smell of a good book. That's, you're never going to take that away. I wanna, I, I'm gonna see whether I can publish my next book with uncut pages, so that everyone who buys it is gonna have to read it with a letter opener, you know, and every other page they'll have to slice open themselves. That's cool. When I read, I don't, I don't have your skill set, like the the tone, inflection, how to, you know, one sentence to me is just one sentence, and one sentence to you is probably a hundred different sentences depending upon how you read how, it. Yeah. What am I missing? when I don't take that, when I don't have your understanding, like how could you teach me, like okay, this, this, open that world of this is what all you're missing to me, and then the other is, well how do you learn how to do that? I think I may have learned this being an actor, Act. mm. and reading Shakespeare. And if you don't have a lot of skill reading things out loud, you're gonna miss how funny things are. I think that's what you're missing most. Hmm. I often have an exercise that I do where I hand out a poem and people read it quietly to themselves. And then, then I pick someone, okay, you read it out loud. And then we talk about how the poem sort of changed hearing somebody else read it out loud. Mm -hmm. And then we'll, I'll call up YouTube, like, now let's listen to the person who wrote that poem perform it live in front of an audience of drunk people. And they realize, oh, I didn't realize how hysterically funny that is. So hmm. when I read, the, the voice in my head is constantly trying things out. Like, is that funny? Is that a joke? Is that a joke? Is that inappropriate? Yeah, totally inappropriate. I should that shouldn't be a joke. What if it were anyway? What if it were anyway? What if? Oh look, there's a rhyme there. There's a rhyme there. Did they want that? Did they, there's alliteration there. And of course, when you're reading out loud, I mean, you're talking about reading. You don't do you read out? You you read quietly to yourself. In my, yeah, it's yeah, in, yeah, right. So you, so you might miss if if you if you read prose that rhymed. Mm-hmm. Would you, would you spot the rhymes? If you're reading quietly to yourself and it's not broken up as a poem. It's not Eventually. Yeah. Like if you string a couple, one, I'd probably miss one or two, but if you string enough of them together, yeah. And would you go back to read the paragraph and go, let's see what yeah. they do? Yeah, just, yeah. yeah, it's like, what did I, what's going on here? I, now I realize I missed something. What's going on? Like, yeah. Dylan Thomas has a 50-line poem, and I should know what it is off the top of my head, but I don't. And... You're reading, and down when you get to the 25th line, the 25th line 
rhymes with the 26th. That's a rhyming couplet. And it expands. The first line rhymes with the what? 50th line. And that's just, that's, nobody can hear that. <laughs> right. That's just an academic exercise. But how fun. Did how he fun. tell anyone or did he just wait nope. to see? No. Nope. Someone just stumbled across they it. They just stumbled across it. Those are fun Easter eggs. Like that's that's dedication. To put put that put that out there and wait for someone to, yeah, realize what you've done. That's right. pretty cool. Right. So tell me about metaphor. I see metaphor dice. They're stacked up there. It's important to you. What what is what does that tool do for someone? And is it an invention of yours? I take it's it. It's an invention of mine. Let's open it. Let, let's can, can we have your listeners hear what it's like to open a set? Let's unbox you, it. You can um, you can. Uh, cut through this if, if you want to. I'll give you this set, so I don't mind if I appreciate it. Thanks. Slice it with that's the sound. Uh, what is this called? DSM? What, uh, Yeti, I believe. No, 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 no. There's a, a new thing like... Oh, ASMR. ASMR, that's what it is. DSM. What's that? That's, that's, <laughs> that's a new thing. That's sex and money. That's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a podcast. So, um, this is based on... You heard me say that metaphor, um, my father is a broken mirror. I gave that... I, I used to do this exercise with with students where I'd say, okay, pick a concept, pick one word from each column. And mm -hmm. so this girl um, chose, my father is a broken mirror. And she said, and I said, well, now your job as a poet is to say, how is that true? How is that true? And she mm -hmm. said, oh, I think I can do that. I said, okay, go ahead. What, what you got? Use the phrase, um, which is to say. And she mm -hmm. said, well, could I say, my father is a broken mirror, which is to say he's been shattered into a thousand pieces. He's hard to hold without cutting yourself. My mother says he's seven years of bad luck, but even in the smallest shards, I can still recognize my own face. I said, oh my God. And that made me realize, well, how come there isn't a way that kids can just generate metaphors? Just, a, you know, mm -hmm. let me generate a thousand metaphors and see which ones speak to me. Mm -hmm. And now, and now there is. Now and there is such a thing. Metaphor desk. i over this table. So roll these. Roll those. Oh, Maybe I just rolled them. There. And uh, now, now you go red, white, blue. Is your mother an unspoken curse? <laughs> my mother is an unspoken curse. What was my, your birth? What is your heart? My heart is a divided, okay, I'm gonna go with divided because of the chambers of the heart. My heart is a divided thunderstorm. Um, don't you, midwife is a great blue word, right? Uh, the, the person who helps birth you. Mm -hmm. But I, keep it away from my birth, right? Because that's a little too on the nose, right? So beauty, oh, you could say my, my birth, my birth was a backhanded meadow through which my mother walked, blah, 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 blah. And then beauty is a well-worn midwife, the well-worn midwife of beauty. So this is just a great, fun way to crush writer's block. A kid who says, I don't know what to write about. You go, oh, here's 12 dice and 13,824 unique metaphors that they can produce. So it's kind of like kids when they're learning words for the first They just use words in a new sentence to see if it works or not. This forces you to kind of go back to that. Like, yeah, and it forces you to think metaphorically. Mm. My, the unspoken, you know, I've, I learned early. I learned early how to survive in a house ruled by the unspoken curse of my mother. And that's just, some people go, oh my God, I could never write that. Well, you did. You just did. <laughs> you know? so, With go, some help, yeah. yeah. So this is my new 
pet project. And the, the second set, the purple set, is a, um, I put up online after this, after the starter set came out, I put up online uh, an online poll to see what people wanted the second set to be, mm -hmm. thinking it's a foregone conclusion. It's going to be dirty sex words, right? It's going to sure. be X-rated metaphors. Nope, that did not win. I, th I thought it was going to be, what about politics and other scandals just in time for 2020? Nope, that did not win. Uh, what came close was a junior set f for younger. These, these tend dark. I've been told mm. that my word choices are dark and cerebral, and I thought, hello, I'm a poet, that's what we do. And then there's another set I want to do, which is um, going to be words borrowed from other languages. But the set that won was the vocab, vocab set, just slightly bigger words. Thanks. Mm. Yeah. That's fun. It's a lot of fun. I, I appreciate. You're welcome to have. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. It's yeah, it's fascinating. And I appreciate what you do. So to talk with you and Thank learn you a little so more, yeah, it's awesome. Safe travels back to Tennessee.